Welcome back to the Renaissance, episode 54, mm-hmm. Papa Bear. How's it going? Oh, I'm all right. I'm all right. Are you still live streaming? Because uh, that's no, a sneak No, I'm not peek. live streaming. Right, yeah. okay. Yeah, no, not live, not live streaming this one. That's one, one episode, that's enough. Yeah, People that's all get, they a, need. get a gist of what happens. Yeah, Keep what happens wanting. on this show. Keep them wanting, yeah. waiting. Yeah, yeah. tease yeah. them. If you want to hear more, you fucking subscribe. But the people listening to this know that because they are subscribed. Thank you. Yes, thank you. Good people. Yeah. Favorite peoples. Um, on our last episode, we talked about Poggio Bracciolini uh, discovering Quintilian's book on oratory in the dungeon yeah. of the monastery of St. Gaul in Switzerland, covered in dirt and dust and mold. Wow. Um, after he sent it uh, to, well, he made a copy of it probably. Mm-hmm. Uh, the, the way that Poggio would work, and we'll talk more about this later, but he would usually, when you went to these monasteries, they wouldn't let you take these books. Yeah. You're like, well, you don't care. It's in the it's in the ground covered in dust. They go, well, you know, it's still, yeah. I still, you know, it's, can't still want to keep it. Fuck you, you can't have it. Right. So he would often copy them out and then send his copy Back to Florence, where his friends, the other humanists in Florence, could make copies of the copies mm-hmm. and um, send them around uh, to other people. Now, when he sent his copy back to Florence, of the copy of Quintilian, the humanist scholar Leonardo Bruni right. wrote this back to him um, in a letter. It will be your glory to restore to the present age by your labour and diligence the writings of excellent authors which have hitherto escaped the researches of the learned. Oh, what a valuable acquisition! What an unexpected pleasure! Shall I then behold Quintilian whole and entire, who even in his imperfect state was so rich a source of delight? But Quintilian is so consummate a master of rhetoric and oratory that when, after having delivered him from his long imprisonment in the dungeons of the barbarians, you transmit him to this country, all the nations of Italy ought to assemble to bid him welcome. Quintilian, an author whose works I will not hesitate to affirm are more an object of desire to the learned than any others excepting only... Cicero's dissertation de Republica. Nice. That's high praise. That's high praise indeed. <laughs> That's high praise indeed. <laughs> I um, I will have more to talk about Cicero's de Republica a little bit later on, but uh, that's yes. that's what a big deal it was for the people back home in Florence when uh, Poggio discovered Quintilian. And, and if I could just add on to that, and the man who wrote that, Leonardo Bruni, is not just anybody. For some people, he is considered the first modern modern historian, and it's going to be Bruni. And we're going to see this later, but uh, because I've got a little bit on it, comparing it to Sparta, that I found fascinating. But Bruni and Salutati are the ones who are going to help jumpstart, along with Petrarch and others, obviously, help jart, um, jumpstart the Renaissance and humanism. So he is someone who is very important. He he uh, he stands high when it comes to those who help start the Renaissance. So to get a, a letter or praise like that from him is actually a very big deal, and Poggio would have known that. Yeah. Yeah, it was uh, Leonardo Bruni, who was a friend of Cosimo, Mm -hmm. who was the first person to describe history as having three periods, uh, ancient antiquity, the Middle Ages, and the modern period. Right. Big deal. So that was a big big deal. deal. Yeah. 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 Now, the um, Abbey Library of St. Gaul, where Poggio, uh, well, the, the monastery where Poggio found Quintilian, was one of the richest medieval libraries in the world. Wow. Home even today to one of the most comprehensive collections of early medieval books. Mm-hmm. As of 2005, it had over 160,000 books, of which 2,100 are handwritten. Oh my God. And nearly half of those handwritten books are from the Middle Ages, and over 400 of them are over 1,000 years old. Damn. 
That's impressive. So, yeah, he knew what he was doing by going there. Now, uh, they started digitizing those books in December, well, no, in, in the 2000s. And the last I heard, uh, they had 355 documents available on their webpage to look mm. at. Right. These, these manuscripts. So that's awesome. Yeah. Imagine, imagine going back to 1416, grabbing Poggio and Bruni and Cosimo and Niccolo de Nicolai and saying, hey, hey, guess what? <laughs> <laughs> 516, 17, 18, 19, 600 years from now, mm-hmm. almost to the day, we can sit in our homes right. on the other side of the world on underwear. an iPad right. in underwear and uh, re- look at this right. stuff. Because yeah. of you. It's digitized. Thank because you. of you. Because yeah. of you. Yeah, well, some of them. Because some, of right, you, yeah. right, right, right. Yeah. Thank you. Yeah. 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 Now, it wasn't the only, that Quintilian wasn't the only amazing book that Poggio found in St. Gaul. He also found Vitruvius's masterpiece on architecture. Mm-hmm. Now, if that name sounds familiar, it's because we mentioned it briefly back in episode 33 when we were talking about Bruno and the Dome. Right. We also mentioned it, Vitruvius, uh, in August, Augustus. Sorry, episode 49, back in February 2017. Oh, my God. Alexander 26 in September of 2015. (laughs) Alexander 11 in March of 2015. And in Caesar 31 in January 2015, which was the first episode that we ever played Toto's Africa in. (laughs) Historic, to say the least. Yeah, Monumental. January 2015. Oh um, that brought back Africa. It was we we yeah. are like the Poggio of that song. That's that true. song had been yeah. sitting in dirt and dust <laughs> on the floor of a monastery <laughs> we rediscovered since it. the 80s, mm-hmm. and we rediscovered it, brought it back to light. I take full credit for yeah. that. I don't care what anyone says. <laughs> and, and may I remind everyone that we actually sang it in the forum in Rome, which made everybody who was with us run away really fast, but we had a damn good time just yeah. breaking into acapella. So you're welcome. I kind of imagine. I, I kind of imagine that playing out differently. I kind of imagine like a people a gathering. Flash mob. Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah I thought people, people would come gather. out from behind things and would <laughs> dun, dun, no. Dun, 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 dun. no, the exact fucking and, opposite. Uh, and it would finish with Toto themselves coming out, <laughs> or Weezer. Toto or Weezer, whoever's there, that's fine. Weird Al coming out. (laughs) All of them. All of them. Didn't really live up to my expectations. I'm sorry. Um, Yeah, so Vitruvius, Marcus Vitruvius Pollio, Roman Mm. architect and military engineer, uh, worked for Julius Caesar, probably, which is why we talked about him back in Caesar 31. Uh, Also was employed by Augustus mm-hmm. and his book on architecture, De Architectura, was dedicated to his patron, Augustus Caesar. Nice. And when it was rediscovered, it had a huge impact on Renaissance architecture. Brunelleschi, people like that, got a lot of inspiration out of it. Of course, Leonardo da Vinci's best-known drawing, The Vitruvian Man, Mm-hmm. is based on the concepts of proportion developed by Vitruvius in this book. All right. If, if I can just ask a question, because I'm not going to pretend to know a lot about this, is this a part of the idea that humans or the human brain finds proportion, finds beauty in proportion? Because, uh, yeah, when you see the, the, the man there with his arms stretched out and his legs and he's, got the, he's in the circle in the square, the fact, the fact that it all comes together nicely, I think I'd read somewhere that that's, that's part of one of, our, one of the aspects of beauty is if, if everything on a person's face or in their body is proportional. Please yeah. don't turn that into a crude joke. <laughs> <laughs> Um, yeah, no, yeah, I mean, the book, I've got a copy of the book, and uh, or the ten books, and mm-hmm. um, yes, it's it's all about the beauty of, of architecture, and he does talk about 
people uh, as well and that and how buildings are built for people and you need to understand people. You need to understand everything. You need to be an expert on everything to be a good architect. Here, let me read uh, the preface of the book. Mm -hmm. Um, While your divine intelligence and will, Imperator Caesar, were engaged in acquiring the right to command the world, and while your fellow citizens, when all their enemies had been laid low by your invincible valour, were glorying in your triumph and victory, while all foreign nations were in subjection awaiting your beck and call, and the Roman people and Senate, released from their alarm, were beginning to be guided by your most noble conceptions and policies, I hardly dared, in view of your serious employments, to publish my writings and long-considered ideas on architecture for fear of subjecting myself to your displeasure by an unseasonable interruption. Mm. But when I saw that you were giving your attention not only to the welfare of society in general and to the establishment of public order, but also to the providing of public buildings intended for utilitarian purposes, so that not only should the state have been enriched with provinces by your means, but that the greatness of its power might likewise be attended with distinguished authority in its public buildings, I thought that I ought to take the first opportunity to lay before you my writings on this theme. For in the first place, it was this subject which made me known to your father, to whom I was devoted on account of his great qualities. After the council of heaven gave him a place in the dwellings of immortal life and transferred your father's power to your hands, my devotion continuing unchanged as I remembered him inclined me to support you. And so with Marcus Aurelius, Publius Menidius, and Gnaeus Cornelius, I was ready to supply and repair ballastae, scorpiones, and other artillery, and have received rewards for good service with them. After your first bestowal of these upon me, you continued to renew them on my recommendation of your sister. Owing to this favour, I need have no fear of want to the end of my life, and being thus laid under obligation, I began to write this work for you because I saw that you have built and are now building extensively, and that in future also you will take care that our public and private buildings shall be worthy to go down to posterity by the side of your other splendid achievements. I have drawn up definite rules to enable you, by observing them, to have personal knowledge of the quality, both of existing buildings and of those which are yet to be constructed. For in the following books... I have disclosed all the principles of the art. Nice. Major suck up, but... Yeah, uh, you do what you got to do. There you go. Yeah. Now, let me ask you this, because as we're going to find out, and I don't want to give too much away, but when Poggio goes to look for books, he might say something non-threatening, like, oh, I'm looking for books that are about 500 years old. Well, he's really not, but that's what he's telling the people, because as we've been saying on these shows, if there's a book that's 500 years old, there's a good chance it's actually a lot older. It's just a copy. It might be the 23rd copy or the 10th copy of of a much older book. And so for for this uh, architect here, it, it might be too much to say that he's the first architect. It's probably more accurate to say that he is the first or the most significant one where his records, where his book has survived. Obviously, in his book, he cites older, um, older ideas than, than his than his own. But he gets the credit for it because we found his book. He's he's part of the one percent that that happens to get discovered and then gets spread all over the place because of the, of the of the Renaissance. He talks about surveying. He talks about central heating. He talks about pumping heated air under the floors and inside the walls of public baths. So again, Rome was very sophisticated sophisticated at one point before the Middle Ages, but because his works, when he covered other people's works, was rediscovered, all of that information can now be disseminated through France, Germany, Britain, uh, obviously the rest of Italy, and, and to the East because of these guys are going around finding these books, sending them back to Florence, and taking their time and money and making copies so they're never lost again. Yeah, look, I think Vitruvius was taking, uh, writing down what he had learnt. You mm-hmm. know, the, the guilds of those days, not that different from the guilds in the Renaissance, right. um, 
you know, we, we've talked about how this knowledge was handed down from father to son. Mm-hmm. Uh, Vitruvius wrote it all down. He, he yeah, took everything that he had ever learnt from his own study and probably from the the guilds that he uh, was part of mm-hmm. and wrote it all down uh, so it could be passed on to others. I'm not exactly sure how that went down with the guilds of his day, uh, whether Good or point. not that was acceptable to write yeah. this stuff down or if it was supposed to be kept secret. Right. But anyway, that's what he did. Right. Fantastic book. So... As we explained in the last episode, uh, these book hunters knew that they had to go further afield than the monasteries of Italy to find these books. Right. Petrarch, of course, had found the manuscript of Cicero's Pro Archaea speech in Belgium. And for many centuries, monasteries had been virtually the only institution that cared about books at all, and we'll explain why in a minute. But even in the best of times, literacy rates in the Roman Empire weren't high by modern standards. And then Mm -hmm. when the Roman Empire collapsed into the Byzantine and Goth and Papal States and the trade stopped uh, between all of those, the whole system of Roman education fell apart. People were more worried about protecting themselves against foreign armies and raiding parties and feeding themselves than highfalutin (laughs) ideas like reading and writing. Right. So those things were a privilege for the wealthy with nothing better to do. Schools and libraries and academies had all either closed due to lack of interest or been closed by the Christian authorities. And, you know, we've seen in the earlier episodes that for centuries, for nigh on a thousand years by this time, people just haven't cared about, in general, people just didn't care about reading at all, let alone reading the works of the pagan Authors, But one of the good things about Christianity during the Middle Ages mm-hmm. was that they did create a small industry of people whose job it was to yeah. be literate and to make copies of books. Right. According to the late 4th century Coptic Saint Pacomius, mm-hmm. when a candidate for admission into a monastery in Egypt or the Middle East presented himself to the elders of that monastery. Here's what happened. They shall give him 20 psalms or two of the apostles' epistles, try saying that 10 times fast, (laughs) or some other part of scripture. (laughs) And if he is illiterate, he shall go at the first, third, and six hours to someone who can teach and has been appointed for him. Okay. He shall stand before him and learn very studiously and with all gratitude. The fundamentals of a syllable, the verbs and nouns shall be written for him, and even if he does not want to, he <laughs> shall be compelled to read. Uh, thank you. Now, this obviously sounds cruel, but this, and like you were saying, you have to give Christianity and the monks credit for this. This is a part of how ancient thought was saved. So they do get a thumbs up for this. But again, these, as we're about to see, these people who ended up on a monastery's doorstep, whether they volunteered or they were put there by their father or whatever, these people are about to go through a whole new world and most of it ain't good. Yeah. Yeah, like, like there's a lot of bad things we can point to about how Christianity brought upon, in large part, the Dark Ages and the mm-hmm. loss of all this knowledge. But this is one of the small bits of light in there is for right. non... Well, not for the right reasons even, but uh, they did maintain a small group of people who could read and write. Now... Mm. The Benedictine monasteries didn't have the same strictness about literacy, but even they set aside an hour of every day for what they called prayerful reading. And here's um, here's one of the lines from their rules. Above all, one or two seniors must surely be 
deputed to make the rounds of the monastery while the brothers are reading. Their duty is to see that no brother is so acidiosis as to waste time or engage in idle talk to the neglect of his reading and so not only harm himself but also distract others. Yes, acidiosis means apathetic, listless, lazy and weary. It turns out that was a thing they identified with monks very early on, basically depression. Right. These guys would go to a monastery and then go, oh, fuck, what have I done? What, what have I done? Where am I? What have I signed up for? It's like being sent to the wall in uh, Game of Thrones. You're like, holy shit, no women, no fun, right. no laughter. What have I done? Yeah, and, and, and again, yeah, clinical depression because they're locked up and as we're going to see that th- there were physical... Um, physical um, consequences, punishment, you know, physical punishments for consequences for when you weren't doing your reading. If I, could, I know we have several of these, but I just want to read this one because I, I found it entertaining. So there's another part of the rule if someone has trouble focusing, which obviously is one of the signs of being clinically depressed. It says that he looks about anxiously this way and that and sighs that none of the brethren come to see him, and often goes in and out of his cell, and frequently gazes up at the sun, as if as if it was too slow in setting, and so a kind of unreasonable confusion of mind takes possession of him, like some wood darkness. So again, he's just looking around, he's listless, come on sun, hurry up and set, because they weren't allowed to work at night because of candles, they were afraid of fires, and so they're just literally looking up, listless, waiting for the sun to set, they're waiting for the day to be over with, because they're depressed, because this is what they're going to do day in and day out, as far as they know, for the rest of their lives. Yeah. That's fucked up. And, and of course, a lot of them didn't have... They weren't there by choice. They were probably sent there because their families wanted to get rid of them. Um, They're not allowed to have fun. They're not allowed to jerk off uh, (laughs) unless it's on a a little boy. Um, Anyone caught not reading would be given a public warning. If they were caught a second time, they would be beaten. Um, Another Benedictine rule was that you had to read aloud in front of everyone right. once a week during mealtimes. Okay. Now, in order to read, you had to be literate, but you also needed a good supply of books. Mm. And monks were often required to buy books, but in the 6th century when the Gothic Wars were happening, oh, yeah. the, the last of the commercial book workshops closed down, left over from the old Roman days. And the papyrus trade with Egypt had vanished, as we right. talked about in earlier episodes. Papyrus, papyrus came out of Egypt. It was made from the reeds mm-hmm. that grew along the, the, the Nile. Um, so monasteries couldn't buy books anymore, and they had to be responsible for making copies of their own books because books would obviously wear out with use century after century. Uh, yeah. Even books made on parchment, animal skins, would eventually wear out. So you needed to make copies of them, and it was slow work, it was tedious, it was painful, as we'll get into. So monks were required to make books, and to do that, you had to be able to make new parchments, and you had to be able to restore old parchments. Mm-hmm. And so monasteries became the centre of the book preservation industry for a thousand years. Right. But the, but the crazy thing is they had the ability to do that, but they didn't have any discipline regarding writing or grammar or rhetoric or actually studying what they were writing. Yeah. So they, they would copy it out, yeah, right. but they wouldn't. They didn't give a shit what they were actually writing out. They weren't taught to prize it or value it. And in some ways that was actually maybe a good thing, mm-hmm. but uh, we'll get to that later. And before we move on, I just have to add, because we, we've been – I mean, you're, you're getting the sense that these people, maybe you're my illegitimate son and I send you at a certain age to a monastery or whatever. The point is you're in a monastery. You're not allowed to leave. It's not going to take much um, for, for your seniors to beat you. And the only thing you have to do besides sleep, eat, poop, and pray is to copy these manuscripts. This is how important it is 
to the um, to to their superiors. But at the same time, you have the flip side of illiteracy, which you, which you were alluding to a second ago, which is taking pride in being able to read. Because as much as they're stressing this to someone, when it comes to reading out loud, if it's something that somebody was doing and it was obvious that they were being proudful about it, that also would be punished because one, pride is a sin. And two, you know, you're not supposed to be lording it over the others who are still struggling. So just imagine a world where you're doing something day in and day out, you don't want to do, but if you do it too well, if you take pride in it, you're still going to get beat. So I'm not surprised that the vast majority of these people suffered from from depression and it didn't matter because they weren't allowed to go anywhere, do anything, or like you were saying, exercise, have fun, go out and have a picnic with a girl or whatever. This was their life. And, but because of them, we still have copies of some of the, of some of the great ancient uh, books. Yeah, very depressing lives for these guys uh, in many ways. And, and we... We know that because they used to write depressing things. There are copies of things that these monks wrote saying, get me the fuck out of here. What did I do? Let me out. <laughs> oh, and, and just the other thing, because um, like you were saying that the monks are the monks and the, and the monasteries are going to end up literally becoming the book preservers for a thousand years or just over a thousand years. The humanists, by the time they come along, they know all this or they, they like you said, they because they've read letters, they know where to go. It's just a matter of if they can get their foot in the door, which I'm sure we'll go into soon. Yeah. Yeah. So the, the early book hunters like Petrarch and Salutati from the mm-hmm. 1300s had already scoured the monasteries of Italy and France right. for lost masterpieces. So the, the next generation in the 1400s needs to go further further away. Uh, Salutati that we've mentioned a couple of times, he was the Chancellor of Florence in 1375, the same job Niccolo Machiavelli had 120 mm-hmm. years later. I don't think we've talked about the Chancellor role much on the show. Not officially so. a member of the political government, um, like the Gonfalonieri and the Signoria, but he was basically the head of the civil service. Mm. Um, and uh, Coluccio Salutati was a humanist. He was a friend of Petrarch, Poggio, Niccolo de Nicolai, Leonardo Bruni, Generation earlier than Poggio, obviously, right. more of uh, sort of Petrarch and Boccaccio's generation. And he spent a lot of his salary uh, on <laughs> collecting books. He ended up with a collection of 800 books in his personal library, slightly less than Niccolo de Nicolai had. Right. And he had some pretty good books in there too. I know that he had Cicero's lost letters to his friends, or did, is that one of the ones that he discovered? Oh, that was what I was going to talk about anyway. Yeah, he had Cicero's lost letters to his friends, the Epistule ad Familiaris, um, which had showed that Cicero was a big defender of, of sort of Republican values. Right. Uh, he found it in 1392, mm. old uh, Salutati, and died in 1406. Right. So the Florentine humanists now start to look further afield. They go to Switzerland, they go to Germany, and traveling that far away, as we said in the last episode, is a dangerous and expensive and time-consuming exercise. Like these monasteries were often deliberately <laughs> located in the what? most rom- remote locations on top of mountains. See that mountain deep over in the there? Forest. Yeah, I want yeah. it up there. <laughs> Because they wanted to stop monks from getting distracted by right. big city life, hookers, <laughs> cocaine, rock and roll, young boys. Marie. So, yeah, yeah, yeah. You, you don't build a monastery in the middle of Vegas. That's a really bad idea. So they would build them as far away as possible. So right. these book hunters needed to get there. And, of course... Florence is often at war with one or more city-states or popes or holy Roman emperors in these regions. And then you've got the usual risks of bandits on the highway. Yeah. Um, So very, very risky exercise to travel to these remote locations to go looking for a book. And then even if you did make it to a monastery, 
alive. How did you get inside, Ray? Yeah, because most of the time you wouldn't be allowed inside. And if one of the other humanists or someone else had come along and gotten inside and <clears throat> borrowed a book and never returned it, obviously they're going to be less likely to, to let you in. So like you were saying, outsiders are normally not allowed in. At least Petrarch, when he was doing it roughly 100 years ago, he was a cleric. He was a part of the church. He could at least call on that. But as we as we may or may not have covered Paggio and the other humanists, most of them were laymen, so they, they, didn't, they didn't even have that claim. And as I think you alluded to on the previous show, I mean, these books are scarce, they're valuable, and because of that, they offer up a certain amount of prestige for the monastery that has them. So obviously, they're not going to let them go. And I know this is not as important, but I just enjoy this very much. It even got to the point where the monks or the monasteries were putting curses on the books just in case anybody stole them. There was one curse, I think, that was written on the inside of the book that said, for him that stealeth or borroweth or returneth not this book from its owner, let it change into a serpent in his hand and rend him. Let him be struck with palsy and all his members blasted. Let him languish in pain, crying aloud for mercy. And let there be no surcease to his agony till he sing in dissolution. And you have to remember these are Christians who are saying, let him be in pain and never ever have no pain. This Because this is how serious they were about this. Let bookworms gnaw at his entails in token of the worm and dieth not. And when at last he goeth to his final punishment, let the flames of hell consume him forever. So you have to be pretty much of a big asshole to have a Christian want you to suffer in hell and damnation and fire forever. But that, that's how serious they were about protecting these books. Yeah, it's the same curse some of my ex-wives have put on me, by the way. <laughs> Very familiar with that curse. You could probably, they, they would be saying it to you and you could recite it and just pick up halfway and just finish it for them. Yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah, Heard yeah, that before. yeah. Snakes, yeah. snakes and plagues. I know, I know. My penis. I got it. All right. <laughs> so even if you did get in... Right. which was difficult, and even if they would let you look at their books, which was difficult, then what? Only yeah. a very small number of humanist scholars even knew what to look for or could uh, read ancient Latin or Greek. Yeah. And then even if you passed all of those hurdles, what would you do if you actually found a lost m- manuscript? Eureka! Now, as you pointed out, they're often not going to let you borrow it these right. monks because if you do even if you promise to bring it back they've got no way of enforcing that or right. tracking you down they didn't have find my friend on their iphones <laughs> they, they 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 didn't what have an saying? rfid tracker in the book right um and they had been protecting these books for you know a thousand years even though they didn't know what was in it they were still right. theirs now if they were poor, you you might be able to buy it off them. Right. But as soon as you showed any interest to it, the price was going to go up. It was like trying to haggle in a marketplace in Morocco. Right. Um, you know they're gonna they're gonna see you coming. This is they're, they're gonna see this as an opportunity to make some bling. Yeah. Uh, now you could try and steal it. But monasteries were built to monitor people. That's why they're called monasteries. (laughs) That's where, as you said, like rich guys would rich guys would send their uh, illegitimate children there, and then tell the monastery, "Monitor them. Don't (laughs) let them out." Because I'm pretending they don't exist. Right. My wife doesn't know. So if you if you tried to steal a book and they caught you, they'd probably beat you to within an inch of your life. (laughs) So what you have often had to do was to copy it out yes, word for word if oh. they would let you. Right. Now, Poggio was actually in a pretty good position here. Mm-hmm. Like he wasn't a monk or a priest, but he had worked for a long time in yeah. the Papal Curia, in the Drop Vatican. Yeah. He was fr- friendly with most of the powerful clerics. Cardinals, popes, bishops, he, he'd known a succession of popes. Mm-hmm. And as you've pointed out, he had a fantastic memory, a great knowledge of Latin. Unfortunately, he had zero knowledge of German, <laughs> even though he'd lived there for three years nope. during the Council of Constance. Not going to learn it. And he was, a, 
He was a gifted linguist, yeah, so it must have cunning, been deliberate. Cunning linguist. He was a cunning <laughs> linguist. But, what? yeah, he's not going to learn. I mean, he's from Florence, or, you know, he considers Florence his home. He's not going to learn the barbarian language. That's beneath him and not worth his time when he could be scribing away or something. Hmm. Although, it might have made it easier for him yeah. to f- track down these books. I concur, Doctor. Um, but it didn't matter, because once he got to a monastery... Some of the people there would have spoken Latin. The abbot, the right. librarian, somebody. So he'd get in. But he was apparently a, a great raconteur, loved telling stories, uh, spreading gossip, telling dirty jokes, would have fit right in on our podcast. <laughs> and when he got to uh, a monastery, he could figure out what kind of stories they needed to hear to make them trust him and let him inside. Now, the the Latin that a lot of these guys, the abbots, the librarians, etc., would have had wouldn't have been highly elegant Latin, like Cicero or Poggio or Petrarch, but it would have been sort of a basic working knowledge of Latin where you could read and write the more scholastic works. But anyway, Poggio thought that if he could impress the guys of these monasteries with his moral seriousness, he could talk eloquently about the miseries of the human condition. But if he thought he could make them laugh, he would tell them jokes about rapey priests and sexy housewives and stupid presents, uh, peasants. Uh, he, he figured out how to get into these Charmer. places by yeah. Yeah, ch- charming his way in. Now, Poggio, as we said earlier, was an excellent scribe. He had very neat handwriting, great powers of concentration, very high accuracy when he was copying something out. And I think it's really hard these days, Ray, to fully appreciate how much of a valuable skill that would have been in his time. Right. And impressive. I'm sure I'm sure he was able to impress them with his beauty and the speed of his writing. And was he ambidextrous? I thought I read somewhere that he could write with either hand, I think. I know he could jerk off with both <laughs> hands at the same time. Well, that's when I get, want to give myself a treat. But the point is, between the beauty of his writing and the speed of his writing and the beauty of his Latin, that would obviously never fail to impress these locals, you know, locked up on the mountaintop in, inside their own monastery. Yeah, but just the ability to be able to write stuff out quickly and accurately and wow. neatly in the era of where everything's being handwritten yeah. was uh, an incredible talent, and it's probably why he rose up through the ranks of the papal curia. Mm-hmm. But even within his own lifetime, the importance of this started to decline because it was in the 1430s that the German entrepreneur Johann Gutenberg mm-hmm began experimenting with his new invention, movable type. Another German. By the end of the 14th century, printers Mm. were printing Latin texts in a typeface, which was highly elegant and very clear, based on the handwriting of Poggio. They looked at Poggio's handwriting and they said, we're going to build our movable type around Poggio's handwriting. Now, apparently, when Poggio was younger, he made a living as a copyist. Mm-hmm. He would just copy books out from the you know, humanists needed a copy of a book. They'd go to Poggio, they'd pay him money, probably a per-page fee or something like that, and he would copy out books right. for them. And he wrote in a script called Lettera Antica, or Ancient mm. Letters. Now, it was an 11th century Carolingian script, but the humanists in the 14th century didn't know that. They thought it was so oh. elegant, so beautiful, it must go back to ancient Rome. But right. it didn't. It was an 11th century invention. But they didn't know that because they didn't have wow. Wikipedia to look it up. Now... <laughs> Carolingian minuscule, as it was called, was developed so the Vulgate Bible could easily be read by literate people from one region to another. 
It was developed for the first time in about 780, actually, by a Benedictine mm-hmm. monk of the Corby Abbey, about 150 kilometres north of Paris, but then was used uh, throughout the Carolingian Empire, the Holy Roman Empire, between 800 and 1200 CE. But then Mm. it was replaced by what they call modern letter, Gothic or black letter. And that was considered too slow and clumsy to write in by Poggio. So Poggio's style is now referred to as humanist minuscule. And what he did by hand was produce a single copy that eventually would be printed and hundreds would be produced when uh, Gutenberg's printing press uh, was developed using Poggio's handwriting as the basis for the Latin text. Now, when when Cosimo di Medici saw Poggio's script, he decided he had to have all of the books in his library copied out in the same style. And by the time the Medici Library was catalogued in 1418, half of the manuscripts were written in Lettera Antica. So there you go. I wonder if you think Poggio would have been pleased to know that his handwriting was the basis of, you know, the movable type, even though it's going to put him out of business in a way, maybe not him specifically, but others like him. I, I I hope he took some satisfaction from that. Yeah, I think he was probably dead by the time that really ha- took off, but uh, so he didn't give a shit. But I, I think he would have been right. just happy. That- but he was looking down from he was looking down from heaven. Yeah, sure, he was. Right. Fine. Good story. Good story, bro. <laughs> um, yeah. Look, I think he would have been happy, very happy, that uh, these books were being copied uh, and available for others to read in his handwriting. Now, there's something interesting when we come to handwriting about his mm-hmm. friend Niccolo de Nicolai. Do you want to talk about his handwriting? So Nicolai was born around 1364, and he's going to live to 1437. Uh, some of the chief services um, to classical literature consisted in his work as a copyist and a collector of ancient manuscripts. Again, he's one of the many who's going to go out there and, and collect things. Uh, he, co- he would correct text. He gets uh, credit for introducing divisions into chapters. He makes tables of contents. So he's taking, again, he's like all these other guys. He's taking them very seriously. And if I've got my names right, I think he was a little older than Paggio. I think he had a little more money than Paggio. He didn't have to worry about uh, trying to get a job. And so I think he was able to spend a lot of his time um, focused on this, going out, you know, finding, collecting, improving, making copies. And he made it to a degree his life's work. But he's also going to be known. He's also also going to get credit for something else when it comes to a certain type of script. Yeah. So when Niccolo saw Poggio's handwriting. He decided to adopt it himself, but he changed it. He modified Mm. it a little bit. He developed a sloping cursive version of it, which was even faster to write than Poggio's version. It became very popular as well, and the later, later printers adopted it as well as one of their movable types, and they called it italic because it was Italian. They Mm -hmm. were German. They called it italic, and that's what we still call it today on computers. Italics is based on the handwriting of Niccolo de Niccoli. So there you go. Impressive. And I and I read that his his library that he collected was so impressive that it was only second to Cosimo's. And I think he came from a rich family, which allowed him to gather up, to hunt, to send people out. So again, all this money that's being spent on this just shows you how it is how important it is to them. They could have spent it on practically anything else, and yet they chose to do this. And that was one of the unfortunate things for poor Poggio. He was being funded by these guys like Bruni and Niccolo and Cosmo. They were paying him to go and mm-hmm. find these books. So when he found them, he didn't actually get to keep them. So uh, I know in some cases, because I've read a collection of his letters, um, he would find a famous book 
in a monastery, lost ma- a masterpiece, copy it, send mm-hmm. it back to Florence and never see it again. Spend the next 20 years trying to hunt it down so he could read it <laughs> and uh, not being able to read it. The right. book that he actually found <laughs> and copied bitch. out because they didn't belong right. to him. And he'd, you know, they'd go to a guy and a guy go, oh, yeah, but I gave it to another guy. And then that guy gave it to another guy and he was going to copy it and give it back to me, but then he disappeared and etc. Now... Poggio, uh, as we said, was sort of the perfect book hunter, very fast, very accurate. Often he would have to stay close to the monastery or in the monastery so he could spend the days there copying these books out to send back to Florence. But it was expensive to travel uh, mm-hmm. and to spend. Like It might take him months to find a book and then many more months copying a book and then he would just turn around and do it all again. Even if you lived very frugally, this was going to be a very expensive exercise. So, yeah, you had the costs of renting a horse, you had to pay fees to cross rivers or to ride on toll roads. There's extortion from government agents (laughs) along the way. Yeah, baby. Little little fiefdoms that you had to pass through. There's you got to pay tips, gratuities to guides to get you through mountain passes. And then, of course, you've got your food, your accommodation, stabling your horse, feeding your horse, horseshoeing your horse, <laughs> all of these costs. Plus, he has to get his own manuscripts, I mean, his own parchments to copy these manuscripts onto, ink, yeah. quills, all of this kind of stuff. Uh, you would normally have an assistant scribe that he had to pay for as well. To usually someone he would train himself so they did it the right way. Uh, he probably had to bribe the monasteries to let him in there and let him copy the books and pay money. So he may have saved some money during his years working for the Pope, but it wouldn't have been anywhere near enough. So it's likely that in 1417, after he loses his job during the Council of Constance, he had to get financial support from patrons back in Florence or the papal court, wealthy humanists who had an interest in seeing these books, finding ancient manuscripts, and, uh, you know, he had, to, he had to reach out to them for support because he couldn't afford to do it by himself. Yeah, I can just imagine. And again, this is, this is why the, the, one of the reasons why they, um, <clears throat> excuse me, this is one of the reasons why the, uh, the Renaissance uh, starts in Florence, besides the humanists that we're going to go into, Salutati and Bruni. Um, yeah, people like this who grew up, you know, they, they went to the same humanist schools. They know how important it is. They've been, you know, they've been taught not beat into them like the monks, but they've been taught about the humanist beliefs, the philosophies, and this is important to them. This is not something they're being forced to do. Uh, People like Medici are willingly giving over impressive sums of money so he can go risk his life and do his part. And you're absolutely right. I mean, he has the specific skill set to make this happen. He just needs the money. Fortunately, he is from Florence. There's a lot of rich people in Florence who want the same the same thing. So in some ways, it's like the perfect storm that we all, to this day, still benefit from. Yeah, these these rich guys in Florence uh, covered Poggio's costs, but we all today are still benefiting from that. That's an amazing, amazing idea. That six hundred years later, we we owe a lot of uh, the existence of a lot of these books yeah. to the fact that these guys were prepared to make that investment. <laughs> now, Nick uh, Poggio, sorry. Now, Poggio wasn't one of these humanists who became so involved in his studies that he lost his taste for life. He loved food, he loved drinking, he loved girls, he loved jokes. In fact, he liked to work in the company of pretty girls, and this was one of his expenses. He um, (laughs) told Niccolo how one day when he was copying an inscription, he stopped doing it to feast his eye on two pretty girls who were watching him. (laughs) Now, Niccolo was shocked at this, but Poggio said that whenever he was working, he always chose to have a couple of well-shaped girls beside him rather than a long-horned buffalo. So it sounds like what he would do, one of his expenses was to pay a couple of 
sexy right? local wenches <laughs> to be in the monastery library right. or in his little room in the monastery so he can look at their titties <laughs> while he's copying these books. It's like, listen, so, let, let, this is very yeah. boring. <laughs> um, I need I need something to look at when I'm not copying letters. And the amazing thing about Poggio is he could copy these books quickly and accurately without even looking at the page. He was just looking at titties all the time. He's like, oh, titties, boobies, and was still copying these books out. He had several mistresses and, by his own admission, 14 illegitimate children. Oh, my God. And so no wonder, no wonder he was uh, broke. <laughs> um, but later on, uh, when he gets back into the paperwork, he's able to make a good amount of money. But, uh, yeah, 14 illegitimate children, several mistresses and... <sighs> Sexy wenches yeah. whenever he's writing his books. He didn't get married until he was 55. Smart. And uh, when he did get married, he married an 18-year-old girl Smart. who brought with her a handsome dowry, which he used to purchase a palazzo, and where he had six more children to this uh, 18-year-old over the course of the next 10 years or whatever. Oh, my God. I'm, and I'm sorry. I'm just trying to picture the conversation. Look, I want you to come, maybe unbutton a couple of buttons, hike your skirt up. We're going to have sex? No, no, we're, we're not going to have sex. I'm just going to stare at you as I write. Uh, maybe the sex can come later. Mm. I don't know. We'll see how it goes. But I'm just paying you to sit there and to uh, emote sexuality towards me because I, I really like to, to receive that while I'm writing. I mean, just a, it must have been a very strange conversation with a professional working girl, if you know what I mean, where she doesn't have to put out. She just has to sit there. Odd. Maybe he got the two of them to just uh, <laughs> a little bit of a little bit of sixty nine. Do you know what my favourite number is? He would say, "Just lie I'm over there, sixty nine each I'm other a, a while work, I work." I'm a working man. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Make, the, make yeah. the days go by. That's my that's my motivation. <laughs> I tell myself if I finish ten pages today, I can come and join in. That's how I motivate myself to do this drudgery work. I know it's going to cost more, but I've got it's an expense not a bad, account. Yeah. It's not a, not a bad idea, come to think of it. <laughs> hey, Chris, hey. a way of motivating yourself yeah. to get it done. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I don't, good thing I'm not live streaming this episode. <laughs> All right. I think that's where we'll wrap up yeah. episode 54 with uh, sexy wenches 69ing in a corner while Poggio is copying out works of Cicero. Uh, we'll be back next time with more 69s. I'm done. <laughs>